This is West Coast Sasquatch Research. Dear listener, let me start off by saying that 19 years ago, four people formed a research club. There was myself, Ken Christensen, Sebastian Wang, and one fellow who went on, as in any boy band, to his own form of fame and notoriety. On this episode, I have that good friend of mine. I've known and admired this guy for almost 20 years now, and it pleases me knowing that our outlook on the subject of Sasquatch is virtually identical. You know, I had an email a while back from a researcher up in northern BC who took umbrage at the fact that I did not believe that tree twists, wood knocks, and nest building were necessarily evidence of Sasquatch. Well, in that email, he accused me of being in that Steenberg fellow's camp with that way of thinking. Well, I wrote back saying that I was in Steenberg's camp of thought, and I wear that fact like a badge of honor. And Thomas is on a very short list of people whose opinion I respect on the subject of Sasquatch, and that list grows steadily shorter. Please welcome Thomas Steenberg. Okay, Thomas, welcome aboard. Hello, Jerry. How are you tonight? Doing good, doing good. Listen, it's a kind of popular knowledge around these parts that you had a birthday a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not going to say how old you were or anything like that, you know. But I'll, I'll give people a clue. It does make you the elder preeminent godfather of Sasquatch in B.C., <laughs> if if not all of Canada, and I can't think of anyone who else who even comes close to that title. So, you know, uh, belated happy birthday. So well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but uh, as of next year, I start counting backwards. It's, uh, that's the rule. As long as you don't start walking backwards. If you saw that movie, <laughs> Little Big Man, you know what that, that means. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, hey, listen, let's discuss where you came from and uh, how you became who you are and how you've come to this point in your life. And I'll, I'll lay a little bit of background here. And handsome lad growing up in Ontario decides to join the armed forces, as so many handsome lads did back in those days. And before you can say, Wolf Carter, you're whipped off to Alberta and you're in the Princess Patricia Regiment. And after serving seven years for with, with King and country, although even though we didn't have Justin Trudeau back then, uh, it was a uh, queen and country. Yeah, okay. And... Uh, you left there... After seven years, now you're on the streets of what what city? Where were you, Calgary or Edmonton? Calgary, Calgary, Alberta. Calgary, and this is where you decided to pursue your favoriteest hobby in the whole world. Now, I take it just you said that you put started up by putting ads in the newspaper, and you were getting responses to these ads too, which probably came as a bit of a surprise to you. <laughs> It did. It did. Um, it was uh, very surprising. I didn't expect much of a result at all, but uh, I swear to God, my phone was almost ringing on a daily basis. Well, and uh, through through the so tell me then, when you when you first started this and you were so surprised about it and everything, what was your first investigation? Tell me about the very first interview you did as a Sasquatch oh. researcher. I would think the most interesting one that I, I started off with was in this, uh, an Australian tourist or a visitor to Canada or Alberta at the time from Australia phoned up the number and said he was just driving his rental car towards Banff on Highway 1A, just outside the Stony Reserve, when he saw what was he described as a great big bloody orangutan running across the road. <laughs> 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 and he... 
And I said, why do you think it was orangutan? I said, I didn't know you had those here. Uh, <laughs> so I, I went to meet him at the po- at the spot where it, where it allegedly happened, mm-hmm. and he really didn't know what Sasquatch was. He just sort of t- uh, asked someone about this thing, and the, the the other guy remembered seeing the ad in, in, in Preston, and he pointed it out. You got to call this guy. He said, "What the hell is this Quatch uh, or whatever?" Squitchquatch. Squitchquatch. Yeah, and. Uh, he said, "Well, that's a creature that people see around here." And he had no idea he was into. Uh, he just joined the ranks of cryptology. But you know, we looked at the air, we looked at the spot, we could see the scalp marks or something across. And he, the reason he called it an orangutan because it was an orangutan, reddish brown color. He saw. Yeah. He said it. Sure. Just, it just crossed the road in front of him, and went in about three steps and disappeared to the right. And he couldn't believe it because he 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 was a visitor from Australia. He was here on business of some kind. On a, on a government trip, I mean, he was part of a, a, a some warehouse company. I can't remember what it was. I think it was washing machine parts they made. Uh, and uh, he, he he saw this thing at night heading towards BAMP because he said, I was going to get a head start. I've always wanted to see BAMP. And uh, he had no idea what it was. That was really the very first case I ever looked into. Yeah, that was like 1979. Wow. Yeah. That was uh so you were getting you were getting good responses to all your emails. And uh did you have a phone number back then? Did you have your little sign on your vehicle like in BC? The signs on the vehicle came later. I, the phone number the, the ad simply was worded this way. Sasquatch. Anyone who believes they've had a sight of this creature, please contact Thomas Steenberg and the phone number that, that I had then. Okay. And, and again, that was it. Yeah, I, the vehicle. No, the the signs on the vehicle followed uh, followed later on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and out of this came one very important contact for you, and that's the professor Vladimir. Now, Vladimir Marconic. Yeah, he got in touch with you. And you went to meet him where at the University of Calgary or some such place? Yeah, his office at the Earth Sciences Building at the campus of the University of Calgary. He was a professor of archaeology and anthropology at the University of Calgary, Vladimir Makata. So you guys hit it off, and uh, he sort of became uh, Professor X, and you became the X Men. And well, you'd be out the there. Ac- yeah, he did the academic stuff. I did the field <laughs> stuff for him because Vladimir was a senior citizen even back then. He couldn't get out very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like you got off to a pretty good start then on your future career as a oh, absolutely. We were kind researcher. Like unofficial partners. And uh, it was really through Vladimir that I eventually met uh, the uh, the late Grover Krantz and I, I met the late Bob Titmus. Uh, and the late John Green, I met Rennie on my own, and and, and it was through those kind of contacts that really got me going off on the right track, and you might say the right direction. Yeah, and, and with that, I'd like to ask you something. Uh, when you had a whole plethora of incidents in Alberta, why make the switch to British Columbia? I mean, you, I said, always... you, you, said, you said that you were surprised you were getting so many... Uh, uh, responses in Alberta, and yet that pales in, in comparison to what Alberta's like now. There's a, a you can't throw a stick without hitting a researcher in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh no! When I was there, uh, Vladimir and I were the only ones, as far as I knew. Yeah, I never heard it. I never heard of any other researchers really in Alberta until after I left. How come you did I like leave? To, I, I like to think I, I sort of started something. <laughs> well, yeah, it would be nice, yeah. But uh, why did you leave? Why did you head for the West Coast? Well, for every even when I was in Alberta, for every report and story, uh, an eyewitness who, well, a last eyewitness who called me up there from Alberta, I got two or three from British Columbia. Ah, okay. So even though I was in Calgary, Alberta, I was hearing a lot about British Columbia, and of so, course, I, and after I met John Green and became a good friends and colleagues with him, I was sort of like 
someone he referenced to uh, if I it was on closer to his side of the province, you know what I mean, or my side of the province. I get you. Okay, yeah. so from Alberta, as I love saying to you, you pulled at the Hinden and left Alberta in the back of a wagon in the dark of night and relocated to Abbotsford and then moved on to Mission. And so what did you do then? Uh, did you try the same routine, putting ads in papers and looking for responses? I went broke. <laughs> you couldn't afford to put ads in paper. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. I went absolutely dead broke. I couldn't find a job here in my life depended on it. I put over 300 applications in and never even got so much response or anything. <laughs> uh, oh, and as for the Sasquatch, well, by the time I was here, I was already well known. I'd already published a, a, a book, a number of books. So I was well known by the time I, I, I moved here in 2002. Yeah, I want to get to those books in a minute. But uh, now uh, in BC, uh, what I like to think about your exploits as walking the lonesome trail. What was the atmosphere and attitude like here in BC? I mean, aside from uh, Green and the rest of the, you know, people who were up on this, did you find that people were rather reserved and didn't want to talk about encounters or what I have you? That, I, was there an I attitude? Find, yeah, I find it here in Canada, uh, the attitude of the people is the main difference in the subject with the same subject in the United States. I mean, um, in the United States, Washington, Oregon, Northern California, or anywhere else, if there's a documentary on, on Bigfoot, which is the American word for the Sasquatch, uh, people say, that's interesting. I'm going to watch that. In Canada, oh, there's a documentary of the Sasquatch on. Oh, that's interesting. But the hockey game's on. I'm going to watch that. <laughs> Rather see the Toronto Maple Leafs and watch yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean we had some uh, we had some conferences and stuff set up in Vancouver, and, and we were lucky to get eighty people. Wow! To come could... and, uh, yeah, to come and take in what was going on. Whereas anywhere in the United States, you'd have them lined up out the door. They'd have to move because there was not enough seats in the auditorium. <laughs> yeah. How, how dangerous can it be wandering around the backcountry by yourself? I remember many years ago, you showed me that tattered knapsack hanging on your wall, and there's a story behind it. Oh, of course, that was the frightening, most frightening thing that ever happened to me. That was in, uh, uh, in the summer of 1986, expo years, you recall here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it was, I, I kind of looked at it as the best year of my life because I was basically in the bush from May to almost Halloween. And I was up near uh, it on, uh, I think it's called Route 93, which is a paved route now. It was, a, it was a dirt road then. And I was looking at this through this Kirkland area. I just picked out a random the search because I thought it would be a good place to look for tracks. Sure. And, and I heard it before I saw it, and it came browning out of the, out, out of the scrub <laughs> or where the trees had all been cut. And it was a bear, and it was charging me. But I was fortunate enough to be beside a cluster of smaller trees, which I assumed they had left alone because they weren't big enough. And there were a bunch of them together. And I started climbing up those trees. And I got about, oh, I don't know, seven, eight feet up. And all of a sudden, it, it, I felt it pull me back down again. And for some reason, it let go. And I went right back up the tree. <laughs> like a yo-yo. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing what you can do when you're uh, tw 25 years younger and uh, full of adrenaline. And up in the tree, I was looking down, and I th what I thought at first was a black bear, because he was jet almost jet black in color, I realized looking down on him that he was a grizzly, because I could see the blunt head, the long four mm -hmm. claws. I, I kind of lucky it was a grizzly because black bears can climb like monkeys and he would they can just, climb like cats. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he would have come right up after, but he didn't, he just popped his teeth and circled the tree for a little while. And then after about oh, 10, 15 minutes, he lumbered off back the way he came. 
And about an hour and a half after that, I came out of the tree and uh, went back to my truck, which is incidentally where my rifle was. And when I got back to the truck and I took the pack off, that's when I realized I was bleeding. Oh, oh. And, yeah, and and uh, my pack was absolutely inviscerated, inviscerated. But the only part that got through my shirt into my flesh were two little puncture marks in my lower back that that took a couple of stitches each. Oh, lucky! Pack. Lucky it went for the pack and not my legs, which I still don't understand. But that's that's what it did, and um. I don't know, man. I, it's just the scariest thing that's ever happened to me was being attacked by a grizzly bear and and getting away with hardly a wound. It was pretty. It was pretty cool. You must have been up in that tree quite a while after he disappeared. About an hour. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was you're shaking it. I was shaking. My my arms were bleeding because of the cuts from the bandage from all the branches breaking as I was pulled down and went right back up. It, it was. It was quite something, yeah. As you say, and it was lucky. With, yeah, yeah. And, when, and I said, when we went back there a day or so later, because I reported it, uh, we found up around where it where it first popped out of the, out, out of the brambles, uh, uh, well, the remains of a deer carcass that was buried. Uh, so it was either a deer killed yeah. or, or scavenging on it. I think when I just got too close to its food cache, she charged. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think it was, yeah. And in a way, maybe it was lucky it was a grizzly because they'll either bluff you or they'll kill you. Mm. <laughs> a, a black bear will mangle you. Mm. It'll stalk you and <laughs> mangle you. Yeah, yeah. They got no problem coming up the trees. Uh, grizzlies don't like to do it, but they don't like climbing. But uh, black bears can climb like monkeys. They can go right up after you. Now, you said you left your gun back in the truck. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have had time to even get a shot off anyway. Probably not. No, it happened really fast. This was like seconds. Just a time to react. You know, yeah. believe me, all that stuff, what they tell you about putting your arms up and yelling at the bear and making yourself look pretty, all, all the things you're supposed to do. When it actually happens, that goes right out the window. Yeah, I don't know, but I think that that's that's uh, that's for black bears. I don't know. I think I think you do that to a grizzly, you just make yourself a bigger target. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, chalk up the old cue stick. I'm going to put this guy in the corner pocket. Tell me something. When did you decide that you had enough cases under your belt, enough uh, inventory of encounters and witness? documentation and everything to write your first book. You figure I got enough here to make a book. Well, ten, it took about 10 years, I think, um, because I started in 78, 79, and the first book came out in uh, 1989, 1990. Oh, that's a difference. Yeah. 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 And it was about 10 years. And um, it was titled The Sasquatch in Alberta, because no one had ever done a book about the Alberta side of the Rocky Mountains before. And I thought I'd write the first. I'm proud to say I have a copy of that. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was it like entering the world of publishing? I mean, how much control? Did you hear all kinds of horror stories? Oh. About yeah. they rip was, books was, apart, and then they decide they don't want to publish it after all. They throw it on yeah, the pile. It, it, oh, it was it was a freaking nightmare. Um, one publishing house agreed to do it. If I rearranged it in another way, and, I, and I, that took a few months, and I, I did that, went through every hoop. They told me to jump through, contacted me again. It turned out the woman who told me to do that had left for another job somewhere else, and the new woman, I could just tell by the tone of her voice, <laughs> had no interest in the subject whatsoever, so that was doomed. And and uh, Western publishers, they, they sort of did a book before on, on, on the Sasquatch. They put together... Uh, the Krantz narcotic uh, uh, um, uh, booklet, uh, uh, Sasquatch on the hominids, a couple of years before mine. Uh, but they were having problems, but they did it and they put it out. And I think my book was the second last one they did before they decided to close their doors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, so 
you were given uh, pretty much run-of-the-mill freedom to uh, write, de de decide uh, what you would like to keep in these books and what you would like, uh, what you're willing to sacrifice on the editorial uh, board. Basically, the biggest argument I had, and I had the same sort of disagreements with my main publisher, Hancock House, and the, and the follow-up books that came later, was I always wanted to uh, uh, put the inter witness interviews, what they said word for word, how they said it and what they said exactly yeah. word for word. And publishers always want you to clean up the grammar. I said, look, I'm not interviewing Christopher Hitchens every time here, you know. <laughs> this is what they said. This is how they say it. And I always thought it should be done that way so the reader gets a clear idea in their mind about who and what type of person they're dealing with. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that's the way it should be done. And I won out on that. They finally came to that. And I think it worked out pretty darn good. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Because, yeah, you want to impart as much of an image of the witness to the reader as you possibly can for them to have an understanding. Because they're only doing it, you know, uh, vicariously through the pages of your book. You, you're there with the person. You can read their face. You can read the intonations in their voice. You can read their body language. So you know you can't you can't water that stuff down mm -hmm. to pass it on to the reader. Can you remember your first documentary? The first time you put that beautiful face in front of a camera and said, "I'm ready for my close-up." A television documentary? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it would. Uh, there was a couple of news items, like just like CBC and stuff like that that came up. But the first real documentary had to be that that great show that was popular in Canada back then called On the Road Again. Oh. Wayne Rodstad. <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think that was really the first one. I was 29 years old when I did that one. And uh, he came out here and he wanted to do a, sh a show about the Sasquatch sightings in, in around the Water Valley here, which is where I was living at the time. And that was really the first, real first uh, documentary I had ever done, other than, you know, five-minute news clips uh, here and there on the CBCs uh, and other stuff and a, a lot of American programs that I never saw. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember that uh, some weeks back on Netflix seeing a Monster Quest uh, show. And oh, you were on up. it. I've... You were on it for all of uh, 90 seconds. Uh, <laughs> you, were, you were there for about 30 seconds at the first part of the program. And you were there for about 40 seconds for the second part. And uh, it wasn't yesterday because you didn't look like you were old enough to shave. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, but but you did have words of wisdom to impart even back then. Yeah, just the facts and nothing but the facts. Do not vary from the facts. I think that 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 was your second line in this in the show. Yeah, you managed to get uh, that out. So that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I wanted to ask you <laughs> along those lines: How often does it happen? that you watch a documentary that you appeared in and think, oh, my God, the editing makes me come off as a blank. Well, I'll tell you, I've had, I like to make sure of just what they're trying to do beforehand. I don't, I don't agree to go on these things blind because they're notorious, especially the BBC for telling you they're going to do this one way and they end up doing it completely different. The worst sample of that that I was involved with was there was an attempt around oh, 2009 or so to restart that Leonard Nimoy documentary right. series from the 70s in search of. In search of, yeah. Yep. In search of. They, they, they're going to do a re-podcast of that. And when I was down in Washington, they asked me to do the, their uh, Bigfoot episode, and I agreed. And the, the new host of it was, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's a fine actor and a gentleman. He's, he's the fellow who played Agent uh, Skinner in the X-Files. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember his name. It's got on my head just at the moment. But he was the host. And I was on this episode where I 
you know, gave him gave him my words of wisdom, and the, the other guests were Dr. Matthew Johnson, who uh, I later figured was, you know, just blowing it out both ends. I didn't believe what he said, and uh, but when they edited it and put it together, um, they took what I said and cut it and edited it to the point where it made it sound like I was saying something completely different. Mm-hmm. I said. The, the, the basic topic of this episode was, is this creature possibly dangerous? And what I said exactly was, if you go by First Nations oral tradition and lore, it gives you the impression that the Sasquatch is a creature to avoid and breath. Right? Mm-hmm. But the only part that made it was me saying, the Sasquatch is a creature to avoid and dread. <laughs> you heard it first here, folks. Uh, yeah, Thomas Steenberg yeah, says, yeah, you know, avoid they and drink. Yeah, they left everything out about First Nations oral history and tradition, which is what I really said. And they made it sound like I was telling people that there's a monster out there. Which <laughs> that, I didn't appreciate that. But I, I was kind of lucky because the, 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 the uh, I guess uh, it never took off because the new in search of never, never really left the ground after, after a couple of episodes. Well, Thomas, you know, I mean, over the years, I've been approached by various uh, production companies in uh, Toronto, back east, whatever, trying to get a scoop on BC and what's happening with the Sasquatch front in BC. And these people are scary. If you pry into exactly what they're after, what they're looking for, it comes out. They just want sensationalism. They they don't want to hear... uh, they don't want to hear truth. They don't want to hear logic. They want to hear a good story, you know, to yeah, pass on to they, their viewers. And, they and just want a monster story. Yeah, and it's it's rather uh, it makes a person rather jaded in in this field because uh, you feel like you're just being used, you know, and mm-hmm. instead of someone taking you seriously and you try to pass something on to them that you think it's worthwhile passing on. Mm-hmm. They, they they don't want to hear that. They they just want to use you and abuse you as best they can. And uh, if you're lucky, they might give you a token ten dollar bill at the end of it. Although yeah. I think most of them don't pay you anything. No, most of them most of them haven't. Um, uh, and they, they weren't all that bad. There's some shows that did exactly what they said they were going to do, and I think they came out pretty good. But it's the ones that try to twist your words and uh, make it sound like you said something completely different from what you actually said. That 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 burns your crawl. I don't like that at all. And that's why a lot of us will like the BBC is notorious for that. And a lot of us, when as soon as we hear we're being contacted by a film producer from the BBC, the old alarm bells go up and say, "Okay, how are they going to try and trick us this time?" It's notorious for that, yeah. Yeah, you know, well, you don't want to put your reputation on the line, mm-hmm. you know, for, for garbage like that. Uh, what reputation you might have in this field, who knows? So but- I want to I know who they are, what they're going to be doing, what angle of this mystery they're looking at, and how yep. they're going to put it together. Okay? Yep. And if I don't like what I hear, I'll say, sorry, you better contact somebody else. Like if I, if I if it turns out that they're admitting that oh kind of a paranormal thing I give them the I give them the phone number or reference them off to one of the the inmates running the asylum I say go talk to them they're more up your alley. Oh God yeah that's what I do when they contact me I give them your phone number. No oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something. How do you decide what questions to ask during a witness interview? Do, I mean, do you have five or six go-to questions that always appear and just come up with the others as you go along? Or uh, what's the story? No, no, I, ha- I have a questionnaire I've used from the beginning. I've added to it as the years went by, and I thought of other things to ask. But it's basically about a 50-question questionnaire, and I've stuck to it, and I, and I continue to use it. So with that, have you ever had uh, an interview where you thought, this person is Looney Tunes? You know, the about, cheese yeah, is definitely slipped off their cracker. I mean, yeah. I, I asked this about, because about. I, I, no, I did interrupt you, but I asked this because about 10 years ago, I was talking to 
a researcher down in Arkansas or someplace like that. And uh, by word of mouth, he got a tip of the Sasquatch sighting out in the boonies there. Uh, somebody said that they were seeing one on a regular basis. So off he goes two miles down this dirt road to a shack at the end of the dirt road. Hillbilly Joe comes out, says, oh, yeah, sure. Come on around the back and I'll show you where the Sasquatch come out every night. And the sun is just starting to go down now. So, you know, he goes searcher, goes around the back with Hillbilly Joe. And Hillbilly Joe says, right there, and that hopes of trees there, that's where they come out at night. Now, the researcher noticed there was this hole in the ground about eight feet wide and deep. He figured it was a well. He said, you know, that's, that's pretty dangerous. And the fellow said, well, it's been like that since 30 years ago when I bought the place. And uh, he said, how deep is it? Pretty deep. So researcher picks up a rock and throws it in, listens and listens, doesn't hit the bottom. So anyway, he asked him, uh, where do you see the Sasquatch? And he said, see the Sasquatch coming out of those trees over there, just over there. You'll see them if you hang around long enough. But, you know, that isn't the oddest thing. So the researcher says, what's the oddest thing? He said, that hole in the ground? Yeah. He said, that's where you hear voices in the night coming out of that hole. Well, that researcher lost uh, with uh, visions of every Stephen King book he ever read in his life. You know, I mean, he just tore a patch around that cabin, hopped in his vehicle and got out of there before the sun did go down. So I'm thinking, did you ever have and he swears it's a true story. And uh, did you ever have um, somebody who just gave you the heebie jeebies like I shouldn't be here alone with this person? I've never had really an interview with someone who gave me the heebie-jeebies, but I've had a, I've had a uh, a lot of people I've interviewed where I, uh, I just shook my head and, and thought to myself, "Let's get this over with." He's he does he's a nut job. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of women out there with weird sexual fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's for another show for another yeah, time. That's a, yeah, that's another definitely. Show. And for why, <laughs> why they have these about a large hairy primate in the woods, I don't know, but there are a lot of strange people. Yeah, it's a, it's a long way from Fabio, isn't it? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, uh, some uh, that that uh, that brings up another interesting point. You know, as you're well aware, a Sasquatch encounter. It's not the same thing to uh, everybody. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people wish it never happened. You know, I mean, have you interviewed someone that, um, okay, that it, it, the encounter appeared to have some debilitating, can't even talk, right? Debilitating effect on uh, this person were, uh, you know, in that case, you were inclined to give them a phone call sometime later or just to check on them and see how they're doing, you know? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you remember the lady who had the sighting up near Half Moon Bay. Yes, yes, I do. 2005, yeah. Yeah, I went up there and, uh, uh, and, and interviewed her and stuff, and she was, she was a... Um, very stressed out by what she saw. And, uh, and when we, uh, like this is what we were talking about earlier, a defunct documentary series, which is what you and I were involved with. She was going to be interviewed. We, you went up and you talked to her yourself. Yes. And yes. And her, her described how it affected her and, uh, and, and her daughter. Yep. And, true. uh, but when it actually happened, she, she was having nightmares. She was very, very upset. I know when I first interviewed her, she actually broke down because she 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 had heard stories of this thing her, her whole life. I mean, everyone's heard the stories growing well, up in to. British Columbia. Sure. But when you see it yourself, and, and she said, I cannot believe that something this big is out and around us all the time, and we don't know it. In other words, it's not in a zoo, it's not in everyday, you know, an occurrence. She said it just it 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 literally freaked her out. It's a shocker. And, yeah, and she's a dear, yeah. dear lady, and, and and she just reacted that way. And I've had that happen, uh, especially with female ones, quite often. Men, it's usually uh, um, 
it's more like you got to, when they see it and it's gone, they sort of say it to themselves, you got to be blank, 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 kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like they're almost angry that it happened. Great. Yeah. Now I got this thing in my life. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> as if life wasn't bad enough. Now I've got yeah. this on my back. Yeah, yeah. Now I gotta tell somebody about it. And they get on the on the on the horn and they get in contact with a few of the more nuttier characters. They think, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> we all internalize in yeah. our own way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, I've come across that time and time again. Um, uh, I witnessed just a few years ago. He was so bothered by it. He told uh, off just off of a Lougheed Highway, um, he saw it on a neighbor's property as he was driving to the Chillick Airport to pick up his niece, and he just saw it. And he, it really bothered him. He said he could not believe the reality that this thing is real, and it's that big, and it's, and it's all around. I mean, he said he had nightmares, and he was. It actually made him made him a nervous wreck. Well, you know, it's almost like seeing a Tyrannosaurus Rex go stomping across the road in front of your car. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's it. I'm quite sure it probably is that bizarre to some people emotionally. Some people, it almost like disrupts their everything they've believed their whole lives. The whole belief system, Yeah. yeah. It's based on practicality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's uh, hard trying to, how would you say? It's like it's like being told, suddenly realizing that something you were told was only a legend mythology your whole life and you took to be yeah. a fantasy tale is actually real. Yeah. And the thing is, how can, how, how can you be practical and be a, uh, be a Sasquatch researcher at the same time. <laughs> it's <I> always, like <laughs> my philosophy from the beginning has always been stick to the facts and never deviate the facts. So I've never varied from that course. And you'll be safe if you stick to that. Yeah. You'll be safe. Yeah. So, I mean, these sightings, the one that uh, we hear about, most of them, the five, 10, 30 year old sightings. I mean, what's the important of, importance of investigating them, Thomas, these cold cases? I think the best thing to do is just so there's a record of the incident and, and that the, you know it, that it actually happened. Mm-hmm. Like these cold cases, I think the best thing they serve is it, it, a lot of the witnesses, um, they're just so relieved to finally be able to tell somebody about this and get it off their chest and have someone take them seriously. Those are people who really believe they actually encountered something and it's been bugging them in the back of their mind and affecting their lives ever since. And they're just dying to tell someone about it and not get immediately told, well, you're a nut. What are you telling me this nonsense for? Get that stuff out of your head. You know, mm-hmm. why are you making up this story? You know, and to them, it's almost, a, I've had that so many times where people tell me something that happened to them 15 years before. It's like a relief. Finally, somebody listened to me. Yeah, right. uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know? Yeah. N- nowadays, with the re- with the so-called Sasquatch field, and I like to say it's more like an asylum that's been taken from the inmates, there's all kinds of people who will listen to you, but they'll do, they'll, come, they'll tell you weird things. Well, you probably saw a star person from the fourth dimension who was <laughs> dropped off by a UFO, <laughs> you know, or something like that, you know, and... and the person's on the other end of the phone who had the, oh, you got to be kidding me. Wham, puts the phone. <laughs> uh, come across that time and time and time again. I mean, one of the worst things that ever happened to this research was the invention of the internet. Because oh, yeah. uh, great tool, great tool that it is. Let's face it, it's a soapbox for every snake oil salesman out there. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, well, I talked about that one with the, the last podcast with John Green. We uh, hit on that about the effect of the Internet on yeah. uh, sightings and uh, believability and uh, what have you. Uh, but uh, I'm going to ask you a question that might get you into a lot of trouble with some people. Depends on your answer. There was an occasion when you stated that you carry a gun with you into the bush so that if you did see a Sasquatch, 
you were going to use it and prove that they exist. Oh yeah, for the first twenty years in this, I was dead. Absolutely, we got to get a. We got to give science what science has always demanded: a body or piece of the body. Nothing else would do. That's what they said they had. So I said, let's go. Let's let's do it. I mean, I agreed with the late Grover Crunch. He said, if they are so low in number that killing one can terminate the species, then they're doomed anyway. It's going to happen <laughs> sooner or later. Yeah, it's going to happen sooner or later. And uh, now today, uh, the way I look at it. It's still what has to happen, and uh, I don't know if I personally could pull the trigger if I had one of my rifle sights. I may be just so thrilled knowing in my heart and my mind that I was right all these years and just be satisfied with that and the hell with everybody else, yeah. you, know, you, you know, because I do this now because I want to know. I gave up decades mm -hmm. ago and, and proven it to everybody. Um Right now, I just do it because I want to know. I can't let go of it, so I want to know. It does the Sasquatch indeed exist? Now, that's for the body and whether or not one should be shot. I still say that that's what has to happen because that's what science demands. And no amount of politically correct wishful thinking is going to change that because that's just the way it works. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people... A lot of people care about chimps, manzies, and don't want to see them hurt, but that doesn't change the fact in laboratories and universities all over the United States and Canada and Europe that they're stacked like cordwood being experimented on. So, Oh, well, for certain. But, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, as the preeminent Sasquatch investigator in Canada, you being the last of the old school and all, uh I think you probably had uh, uh, experienced everything that this vocation can throw at you, I'm sure, save for the actual encounter itself. But, you know, you're in good company there. Does it get tiring, the search, showing little of any results? Well, Does it wear you down? It, it's frustrating and disappointing. I mean... If you had asked me back in 1978, would we still be looking for it in 2021? I would have said you were crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you no, know, but here we are. <laughs> here we are. I've been in this 42 years now. And I'm still wondering if they're there. And in all that time of searching, I may have only had a fleeting glimpse myself once. And yeah. that was in 2004. And I saw a figure. It, it was jet black in color. It was jet black in color. It was walking upright. But like I said, my philosophy has always been stick to the facts and never deviate the facts. So the facts are it was about a mile away, and I couldn't see details. So I can't say with 100% certainty that wasn't some great, big, odd-looking man way up there. Uh-huh. Yeah, but if yeah. he was, uh, what he'd be doing there, I don't know. Because the way I remember this is that that thing thing begging for a Sasquatch. So um, if that was a Sasquatch, I have seen one. If it was not, I still have not. You know, there's uh, uh, what appears to me to be a shortage of credible sightings in the past five, six, seven years or so. And... Uh, oh, why do you think that might be? You know, are the numbers scarcer than we might have thought, or is their traveling circuit interrupted by mankind's expansion into certain areas? I remember years ago, probably go back about eight or nine years ago, and uh, like we had a, a couple of summers that were hot to trot in the lower mainland. I mean, uh, back in 2009 to 10, uh, like once a month, there was what you would call a legitimate sighting, you know? I mean, uh, Ruby Creek, uh, Mount Archibald, mm -hmm. just to name a couple right here in the lower mainland. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was that was the summer of the Sasquatch, that was. I mean, mm -hmm. these, these cases were, uh, you know, almost ironclad, except the uh, Sasquatch itself didn't turn up for the interview, you know? Yeah, it would have been, yeah, it yeah, been yeah. Uh, perfect. Perfect ten pointer, except for that. So I don't, I don't know. Why does it go around in circles? Do you think? 
I, I always thought that, you know, the, the Sasquatch has its own circuit, that it travels. That's why you get reoccurring sightings in the same place with about a 10-year gap in between. I don't know. What do you think? My hypothesis is this. The Sasquatch, I go along with what Grover Crash used to say. I, I think, assuming that the creature does exist, there may be one for every 100 bears in any given area. I think the creature lives in family groups. Now, I got to admit, this is all hypothesis on my part. I have no way to back this up. I think they live in family groups. That would be one dominant male and a number of females in young. That dominant male tolerates the daughters, but when the sons get to a certain size, he drives them off. Mm -hmm. And they go live a nomadic lifestyle, wandering out there on their own getting bigger, getting stronger, getting bigger, getting stronger as the years go by. And maybe one day they'll come across a family group and challenge the dominant male and either kill him or drive him off. And, yeah. and, and that and when people report a rather sickly grayish tip one, that may be former dominant males that got dethroned and they go back to that native, uh, that nomadic lifestyle to live out the rest of their lives. If they're lucky enough not to be killed by the young challenger that drove them away in the first place. And that, but these, these adolescent males getting bigger, getting stronger, wandering around, establishing their own territories and stuff like that. I think that's what people are encountering most of the time because you get so many little communities like Duty and DeRoche, where for years you don't hear of anything, and then suddenly for a period of a week or so, there are several incidents, and they stop almost as suddenly as they had started. As though one had come into the area, hung around for a while, and then moved on. But I think that's what we're, what, what we're seeing, is these males getting bigger, getting stronger, going on, and if they're lucky enough to take over a family group, maybe a great many of them never get that opportunity, and they live their whole lives that nomadic way. And that's what people are encountering most of the time. That, to me, is a, a, a logical explanation for the cycle, uh, which is rather similar to, you know, orangutans and gorillas. And wolf packs. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, wolf packs are usually uh, like troops. And chimpanzees, they have large troops. that yes. were several males, and they even make war on other troops. They're a little different. I think it's more like like the the mountain gorilla or the orangutan dominant one dominant male a number of females and young right and he drives he drives the, the male young off and they live a nomadic lonely lifestyle until they're lucky enough to ever in their prime to take over a family group of their own you know and that's just the cycle. God, that almost describes my first wife. <laughs> I'm going to tell her you said and, that. Oh, she'll probably hear it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, you know, once this goes, once this goes on the year, that's it. The internet is an unforgiving place. Tell me something, Thomas. Would you advise anyone to take up Sasquatch research for a hobby? Yes, as long as they develop a, a philosophy like mine, stick to the facts and never deviate the facts, and don't get seduced by uh, the inmates running the asylum because they will try. Well. Yeah, yeah, I believe that for certain, you know, and using your hindsight, are there things that you might have done differently in your own life during the pursuit of Sasquatch? You know, I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing, of course, but uh, it's just it's, just, it's something not taken away from your research, not taking anything away from it, but something you would have done differently. I would have taken a lot more photographs. Yeah. A lot more photographs, the incidents, but so many years before the uh, digital age, I was using expensive 35 millimeter. <laughs> and I was always reluctant to shoot too many pictures in case I ever came across what I was looking for. And I'd have a lot of shots left. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. the, so the, plus, the pluses outweigh the negative. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, to me, I, I'm fascinated. I wouldn't have traded my life for anything. I may have done a few things a little differently, but uh, no, no, I wouldn't have traded my life for anything. 
It's not too many people who get to pursue something they love to do. Most people are stuck in jobs they hate and they live lives they hate. <laughs> Just looking for their two weeks off. I remember Rennie said, if I had to live that way, working nine to five, 360 days a year with a couple of weeks vacation, I'd go out the back and blow my head off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 it's not too many and I told him and at the end of his life poor Rene was having doubts about everything I said hey look Rene you got to do what you wanted to do there's not many people who could say that you know there's an old saying that it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness yeah, absolutely and that's what you guys have done in your own way you know yeah, yeah. Thomas this has been amazing wonderful my dear friend so good to talk to you We'll uh, have to do it again very, very soon. Anytime, Jerry, anytime. Yeah, and I want to tell something to the dear listeners out there, you know, that uh, Thomas is famous for more. Uh, not many people know this, but Thomas is famous for more than just being a preeminent Sasquatch researcher. He also does one hell of an impersonation of Smithers and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, other Simpson characters. And Rennie de Hinden too, but you know that's that's that'll just be our secret. That's what he's wow. really going to be famous for ten years from now. Homer Simpson, do Homer again, Thomas. Homer <laughs> well, without mixtures like a bowling bubble on a liquid center. <laughs> but of course, oh, you good. know, Rennie said Rennie would say, "Stop talking about this horseshit. Just get the rocks out of your head and go and go grab it." <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, it's been a slice. We're going to have to do it again real soon. You got her, Chief. You got her. You take care, my friend. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, dear listener, that about wraps it up for now. My name is Jerry Matthews. You can reach me at yellowcoyote at talus.net. Thank you for your interest, and until the next time, keep searching. Keep searching.